Welcome back to the Hemingway List podcast for Book 3, Chapter 4 of Buttonbrooks. The Buttonbrooks are assuming this would be a good strategic marriage. Do you think it would be? Swim, said the mama fishy, says, uh, Junior Buttonbrook certainly seems to think so. A couple of telling lines said by Junior, it is well known his business is flourishing and we have not moved ahead, not really, since father passed on. Junior sees this marriage as a good business decision, just like his marriage was to Betsy. It must be remembered that marrying for love is a more modern construct. At the time this book takes place, family alliance and financial amalgamation was still a primary consideration for marriage. Yep, I kind of have got that drilled into my head from the Hemingway list. Every book seems to have a strategic marriage, or at least one, you know minimum one strategic marriage probably more Techrific says we have not moved ahead not really since father passed on this is a key sentence I think the whole impetus of this hastily hastily considered arranged proposal sorry to this hastily consideration for the arranged proposal this alliance is supposed to have saved the firm Buttonbrooks, sending her off to the coast is just a ruse in order for her to come back to see her senses and do this thing for the family, but especially for the firm. TA131901 says, What struck me in this chapter was the line from the Duchamp family that the console talks to the Grunlich. Although they are not familiar with these circumstances, he lives like a gentleman. Not familiar with his circumstances, the Buddenbrooks can trace their circumstances to the 17th century in their big book. I understand the idea of marrying to make an alliance, but seems like something potentially murky in this alliance. That was what struck me. That's why I asked that question, TA131901. Um, it did just seem like this guy is kind of maybe a bit like a master manipulator, you know? He had the parents wrapped around his little finger after about two minutes, saying all the right things, planting all the right seeds in their head. And I feel like he would be the kind of person to propagate these rumours of his business flourishing, even if maybe it isn't uh, murky. But I could be wrong. Maybe he is flourishing in business. It does feel a bit like what's in it for him. You know, Why is he so keen on this girl who you just met? Anywho, let's read chapter five to see if any thing happens. goes like this. The road to Travamundi first crosses the ferry and then goes straight ahead. The grey high ride high, the grey high road glided away under the hoofs of Libretch Kroger's fat brown Mecklebergs. The sound of their trotting was hollow and rhythmical, the sun burned hot and dust concealed the meagre view. The family had eaten at one o'clock, an hour earlier than usual, and the brother and sister set out punctually at two. They would arrive after, shortly after four. For what a hired carriage could do in three hours, the Kroger pair were meddlesome enough to make it in two. Tony sat, half asleep, nodding under the broad straw hat and her lace-trimmed parasol, which she had held tipped back against the hood of the chase the parasol was twine gray with cream colored lace 
and her and matched her neat, simply cut frock. She reclined in the luxurious ease proper to the equipage, with her feet in their white stockings and strap shoes daintily crossed before her. Tom was already twenty years old. He wore an extremely well-cut blue suit and sat smoking Russian cigarettes with his hat on the back of his head. He was not very tall, but already he boasted a considerable moustache, darker in tone than his brows and eyelashes. He had one eyebrow lifted a trifle, a habit with him, and sat looking at the dust and the trees that fled away behind him as the carriage rolled on. Tony said, I was never so glad to come to Travemundi before, for various reasons. You needn't laugh, Tom. I wish I could leave a certain pair of yellow mutton chops even further behind, and then it will be an entirely different travel one day at the Schwarzkopf's on the seafront. I shan't be bothered with the Kerr House Society, I can tell you that much. I'm not in the mood for it. Besides, besides that, that man could come there too, as well as not. He has nerve enough. It wouldn't trouble him at all. Some day he'd be bobbing up in front of me and putting on all his airs and graces. Tom threw away the stub of his cigarette and took a fresh one out of the box, a pretty little affair with an inlaid picture inside the lid of an overturned troika being set upon by wolves. He was a present from a Russian customer of the console. The cigarettes, those biting little trifles with a yellow mouthpiece, were Tom's passion. He smoked quantities of them and had the bad habit of inhaling the smoke, breathing it slowly out again as he talked. Yes, he said, as far as that goes, the garden of the Kerr house is alive with hamburgers. Consul Fritsch, who has bought it, is a hamburger himself. He must be doing a wonderful business now, Papa says, but you'll miss him. But you'll miss something if you don't take part in it a bit. Peter Dolman is there. He never stops in town this time of year. His business goes on at a jog trot all by itself, I suppose. Funny. Well... And Uncle Justice comes out for a little on Sunday, of course, to visit the roulette table. Then there are the Mollendorfs and the Kistenmakers, I suppose, in full strength, and the Hagenstroms. Hmm. Yes, of course, they couldn't get on without Sarah Semlinger. Her name is Laura, my child. Let us be accurate. And Julchen with her, of course. Julchen ought to get engaged to August Mollendorf this summer. And she will do it, too. After all, they belong together. Disgusting, isn't it, Tom? This adventurer's family? Yes, but good heavens, they are in the firm of Strunk and Hagenstrom. That is the point. Naturally. They make the firm, of course. And everybody knows how they do it. With their elbows, pushing and shoving entirely without courtesy or elegance. Grandfather said that Henrik Hengelstrom could coin money out of paving stones. Those were his very words. Yes, yes, that is exactly it. It is money talks. This match is perfectly good business. Julshin will be a Mollendorf, and August will get a snug position. Oh, you just want to make me angry, Tom, that's all. You know how I despise that lot. Tom began to laugh. Goodness, one has to get along with them, he replied. As Papa said the other day, they are the coming people, while the Mollendorfs, for example, and one can't deny that the Hagenstroms are clever, Herman is already useful in the business, and Moritz is very able. He finished school brilliantly in spite of his weak chest, and he is going to study law. That's all very well, Tom, but all the same, I am glad there are families that don't have to knuckle down to them. For instance, we Buddenbrooks.
Oh, Tom said, don't let it begin to boast. Every family has its own skeleton. He went on in a lower voice with a glance at Jock's broad back. For instance, God knows what state Uncle Julius's affairs are in. Papa shakes his head when he speaks of him, and Grandfather Kroger has had to come forward once or twice with large sums, I hear. The cousins aren't just the thing either. Jurgen wants to study, but he still hasn't come up for his finals, and they're not very well satisfied with Jacob at Dalbeck and Company. He's always in debt, even with a good allowance, and when Uncle Justice refuses to send any more, Aunt Rosalie does. No, I find it doesn't do to throw stones. If you want to balance the scale with the Hagenstroms, you'd better, better marry Grundlich. Did we get into this wagon to discuss that subject? Oh, yes, I suppose you're right. I ought to marry him, but I won't think about it now. I want to forget it. We are going to the Schwarzkopfs. i never seen them to know them. Are they nice people? Oh, old Diedrich Schwarzkopf. He's not much. He's not such a bad old chap. Doesn't speak such atrocious dialect unless he's had more than five glasses of grog. Once he was at the office and he went together to the ship's company. He drank like a tank. His father was born on a Norwegian freighter and grew up to be captain on the very same line. Diedrich has had a good education. The pilot command is a responsible office and pretty well paid. Diedrich is an old bear, but very gallant with the ladies. Look out, he'll flirt with you. Oh well, and his wife? I don't know her myself. She must be nice, I should think. There is a son, too. He was in first or second in my time at school, and is a student now, I expect. Look, there's the sea. We shall be there inside a quarter of an hour. They drove for a while along the shore, on an avenue bordered with young beech trees. There was the water blue and peaceful in the sunshine. The round yellow lighthouse tower came into view, then the bay and the breakwater the red roofs of the little town, the harbour with its sails, tackle and shipping. They drove between the first houses past the church and rolled along the front close to the water and up to a pretty little house, the veranda of which was overhung with vines. Pilot Captain Schwarzkopf stood before his door and took off his seaman's cap as the caliche drove up. He was a broad, stocky man with a red face, sea-blue eyes, and a bristling, grizzled beard that ran fan-shaped from one ear to the other. His mouth turned down at the corners, in one of which he held a wooden pipe. His smooth-shaven red upper lip was hard and prominent. He looked thoroughly solid and respectable, with big bones and well-rounded paunch, and he wore a coat decorated with gold braid underneath which a white peak waistcoat was visible. Servant, mademoiselle, he said, as he carefully lifted Tony from the caliche, we know it's an honour you do us, coming to stop with us like this servant, her Buttonbrook, papa, well, and he honoured, and the honoured Frau Consul, come in, come in, my wife has come, sorry, my wife has some sort of bite ready, I suppose, driver, drive over to Peterson's Inn, he said in his broadest dialect to the coachman, who was carrying in the trunk, You'll find they take good care of the horses there. Then turning to Thomas, You'll stop the night with us, Herr Huddenbrook? Oh yes, you must. The horses want a bait and a rest, and you wouldn't get home until after dark. Upon my word, one lives at least as well here as at the Kerr house, Tony said a quarter of an hour later, as they sat around the coffee table in the veranda. What wonderful air. You can smell the seaweed from here. 
how frightfully glad I am to be in Travamundi again. Between the vine-clad columns of the veranda, one could look out on the broad river mouths glittering in the sun. There were the piers and the boats and the ferry house on the Prival opposite, the projecting peninsula of Mecklenburg. The clumsy blue-bordered cups on the table were almost like basins. How different from the delicate old porcelain at home. But there was a bunch of flowers at Tony's place. The food looked inviting, and the drive had whetted her appetite. Yes, mademoiselle, we'll see. She will pick up here fast enough, the housewife said. She looks a little poorly, if I might say so. That is the town air and the parties. Frau Schwarzkopf was the daughter of a schlup-top pastor. She was a head shorter than Tony, rather thin, and looked to be about fifty. Her hair was still black and neatly dressed in a large meshed net. She wore a dark brown dress with white crocheted collar and cuffs. She was spotless, gentle and hospitable, urging upon her guests the currant bread that lay in a boat-shaped basket surrounded by cream, butter, sugar and honeycomb. This basket had a border of beadwork embroidery done by little Meta, the eight-year-old daughter, who now sat next to her mother, dressed in a plaid frock with flaxen hair and a thick pigtail. Frau Schwarzkopf made up excuses for Tony's room, whether she had already been to make herself tidy after the journey. It was so very simple. All the better, Tony said. It had a view of the ocean, which was the main thing, and she dipped her fourth piece of currant bread into her coffee. Tom talked with the pilot captain about woolen wooer, now undergoing repairs in the town. There came suddenly into the veranda a young man of some twenty years. He took off his grey felt hat, blushed and bowed rather awkwardly. Well, my son, Sir, Herf, Sir said Herr Schwarzkopf, you are late. He presented him to the guests. This is my son, studying to be a doctor. He's spending his vacation with us. He had mentioned the young man's name, but Tony failed to understand it. Pleased to meet you, said Tony, primly. Tom rose and shook hands. Young Schwarzkopf bowed again, put down his book, and took his place at the table, blushing afresh. He was of medium height, very slender, and as fair as he could possibly be. His youthful moustaches, colourless as the hair which covered his long head, were scarcely visible, and he had a complexion to match, a tint like translucent porcelain which grew pink on the slightest provocation. His eyes, slightly darker than his father's, had the same not very animated but good-natured quizzical expression, and his features were regular and rather pleasing. When he began to eat, he displayed unusually regular teeth, glistening in close ranks of, very, of polished ivory. For the rest, he wore a grey jacket, buttoned up, with flaps on the pockets and an elastic belt at the back. "'Yes, I am sorry. I am late,' he said. His speech was somewhat slow and grating. I was reading on the beach and did not look soon enough at my watch. Then he ate silently, looking up now and then to glance at Tom and Tony. Later on, Tony began being again. Later on, Tony being again urged by the housewife to take something, he said, "You can rely on the honey, Fräulein Bunbrook. It is a pure nature product. One knows what one is eating. You must eat, you know. The air here." consumes one it exhilarates the process of metabolism if you do not eat well you will get thin he had a pleasant naive way of now and then bending forward as he spoke and looking 
at some other person than the one whom he addressed. His mother listened to him tenderly and watched Tony's face to see the impression he made. But old Schwarzkopf said, Now, now, her doctor, don't be blowing off about your metabolism. We don't know anything about that sort of talk. Whereupon the young man laughed, blushed again and looked at Tony's plate. The pilot captain mentioned more than once his son, Christian, by name, but Tony could never quite catch what it was. It sounded like Moore or Mort. Oh, sorry, his son's Christian name. Uh, but the father's broad, flat pronunciation was impossible to understand. They finished their meal. Her Diedrich sat blinking in the sun, his coat flung wide open over his white waistcoat, and he and his son took out their short pipes. Tom smoked his cigarettes, and the young people began a lively conversation, the subject of which was their old school, and all the old school recollections. Tony took part gaily. They quoted her stingle. What? You were to make a line, and what are you making? A dash. What a pity Christian was not here. He could imitate him so much better. Once Tom pointed to the flowers at Tony's place and said to his sister, that trims things up uncommonly well, as her Greenwich would say, whereat Tony, red with anger, gave him a push and darted an embarrassed glance at young Schwarzkopf. The coffee hour had been unusually late, and they had prolonged it. It was already half past six, and twilight was beginning to descend over the Prival when the captain got up. The company will excuse me, he said. I've some work down at the pilot house. We'll have supper at eight o'clock, if that suits the young folk. Or even a little later tonight. Hey, Meta, and you, here, he used his son's name again. Don't be lolling, lolling about here. Just go and dig up your bones again. Fraulein Buttonbrook will want to unpack. Or perhaps the guests would like to go down to the beach. Only don't get in the way. Diedrich, for pity's sake, why shouldn't he sit still a bit? Frau Schwarzkopf said with mild reproach and if our guests like to go down on the beach why shouldn't he go along is he to see nothing at all of our visitors alrighty that's that chapter we're at the beach now awesome and I'm leaving the beach tomorrow morning so that's fitting I get to extend my beach time via this book thanks for listening See you tomorrow.